Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Luke. This morning we are looking at chapter 4, verses 16 through 30. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. Please give your attention to God's holy, powerful word. And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow." And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Sometimes you might hear this referred to as Jesus' first sermon. And it is the first recorded sermon in terms of what was actually said. But verse 15, which we didn't read, but was the verse just before we started in verse 16, says that when he went to Galilee, after his temptation in the wilderness, he traveled around Galilee and it says he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. So he had been preaching, he had been doing ministry, he had been healing and doing miracles. We know that from the other Gospels. But Luke chooses to skip to this sermon in this location in his hometown of Nazareth where he grew up. You can imagine that as he returned after this, these kind of spectacular works and great words that he's preaching around the region as he returned to Nazareth, you can imagine that the town was buzzing with news about this hometown hero, this boy who was the talk, who had been a boy there, who's now a man, who was the talk of the region. I think, and we don't know for sure, but I think that it's safe to assume that Luke chose 
this event in his hometown of Nazareth when Jesus preached this sermon for two reasons. First of all, because in a very real sense, this event is Jesus' ministry in a nutshell. It's a microcosm of the rest of his ministry to come in this sense, in which he comes, he proclaims the good news of the kingdom of God. The people are initially thrilled and blown away by what he has to say. They initially follow, but they become skeptical, critical, eventually hostile towards him, and eventually try to kill him. That's what happened in Nazareth, and in a very real sense, that's what happened the rest of his ministry. So it is a Jesus' ministry in a nutshell. The second reason that I think Luke chooses this as his first recorded message, his first recorded sermon, is because Jesus chose an Old Testament text from Isaiah chapter 61, which was essentially his job description as the Messiah. He's just beginning his ministry. And here you have not just really his job description, but his mission statement. It's his kingdom manifesto, as it were. And I think as the more deeply we dig into it and understand the mission that he is describing based on Isaiah 61, the more we're going to understand why he was and why he continues to be so divisive among people. If you want to start a heated debate, walk into a mixed group of people, people from all different religions, all different philosophies, all different stations of life, walk into a mixed group and just ask a simple question. Why do you think Jesus came? What do you think Jesus' mission was all about? I think this has become really relevant, and I'm going to give you a, a warning here. It's going to sound like I'm getting political, and you're all going to get all your nerves up, like, where's he going with this? I'm just using it as an illustration. I'm not going to dive into contemporary politics. But it is interesting, as I've been following the primaries, the Democratic candidates particularly, as they've gotten all the focus in the media, there's one candidate on the Democratic side named Pete Buttigieg, who is an Episcopalian, professes to be a devout follower of Jesus Christ. And that's not uncommon. Matter of fact, all of our presidents have claimed to be a Christian in one way or another. So that's not uncommon. But what makes him stand out a little bit among other politicians is that he doesn't seem to be at all hesitant to say that his understanding of Christianity, his understanding of Jesus Christ, and his understanding of Jesus' mission is the right one, and anybody who doesn't agree with his version is wrong and therefore not truly a follower of Christ. And that's a pretty dramatic and radical statement to make. Well, what is his view of the mission of Christ? He has stated it very clearly. In the November debate, Democratic debate, this is what he said. I'll just quote him exactly using his own words. He said, my faith in Jesus Christ teaches me that salvation has to do with how I make myself useful to those who have been excluded, marginalized, cast aside, and oppressed in society. Let me read that for you again. My faith teaches me that salvation, 
has to do with how I make myself useful to those who have been excluded, marginalized, and cast aside and oppressed in society. Is that what salvation is? Was that the mission of Jesus Christ? Is that the good news that he came to proclaim? If you only read this passage from Isaiah 61 that Jesus quotes for his sermon, you might be led to that conclusion because it talks about ministry to the excluded, the marginalized, the cast aside and oppressed. But, and this is really my thesis for the sermon, it's that if you take Isaiah 61, which does describe the mission of Christ, the coming, it's a prophecy written 800 years before Christ, saying what his mission would be, if you put it in the context of Isaiah 61, if you put it in the context of the last section of the book of Isaiah, if you put it in the context of the book of Isaiah as a whole, if you put it in the context of the Old Testament as a whole, and if you put it in the context of the whole Bible, you will see that it is a wrong understanding of the overall mission of Jesus Christ, and it's certainly a wrong understanding of salvation. Where did Pete Buttigieg go Buttigieg, boy, I've practiced that all week. Where did Pete go wrong? Well, I think it's helpful to, for me to give you another quote, this one from a Rolling Stone interview. This is what he said about the Bible. He said, many things in Scripture are inconsistent in each Many things in Scripture are inconsistent internally, and you have to decide what sense to make of it. In other words, he has set himself up as a judge over Scripture. Scripture is not trustworthy. Scripture is not reliable. Scripture is full of errors, and we, you, have to decide what sense to make of it. And so what happens then, and every time this is done, it's not just politicians, preachers do it, Everybody in the street tends to do it. Whatever fits my agenda, whatever fits my plan, whatever fits my philosophy, that's true in the Bible. Anything else is wrong. I don't want to judge Mayor Pete too harshly, though. Do you have a filter? We all have filters. We all have presuppositions. Things that have been constructed over years of experience, and teaching and influences that create a filter for how we read the Bible. And what we are to do is always to hold that filter up which has been developed and hold it up to Scripture, to the light of Scripture, and say, is this filter accurate? Does it fit what the Scriptures teach? And this is most, most importantly true when it comes to who Jesus is and why he came. There is no important question, more important question in the world then who is Jesus and why did he come? Let's look at this exposition that he gives of Isaiah 61 so that we might understand his mission more correctly. In Nazareth, when he arrives there, it says he goes to the synagogue. That's what he always did. That's what the apostles did as well. They came to a town, they would go to the synagogue. The synagogues were really very much like the early church. They were where the Jewish, they started in the Babylonian captivity. When the Jews were taken away to Babylon, they didn't have the temple anymore. They didn't have the priesthood. They didn't have the sacrifices. How did they stay faithful to the word of God? 
How do they stay faithful to God himself without those things? Well, they would meet in homes. Small groups of families would meet in homes, and they would read the scriptures, they would pray, they would sing psalms, and they would worship. Looked very much like the early church, looks very much like our church, a worship service. And that's what the synagogue was. It continued even after they returned to Jerusalem and had the temple and the sacrifices and the priesthood restored. They continued to meet in homes and have synagogue worship services. And that really was the liturgy. Prayer, singing of the Psalms, reading from the law, the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, and then a reading from the prophets. And then a sermon, either by one of the elders of the synagogue or from a visiting rabbi. I just want to point out here, it says that as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Jesus was a faithful churchgoer. Church was important to him. The synagogue was where God's people were meeting to hear the word of God, to worship, to pray, and to fellowship in his name. And Jesus loved to gather with God's people to worship the Father. He loved to do that. As Psalm 84 verse 10 says, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Think about Jesus sitting in a synagogue service. Have you ever sat in a worship service and sat there during the sermon and thought, I could preach better than this guy? Could you imagine Jesus sitting in a service, listening to a sermon? What excuse do you have to be critical? So when it came time to read from the prophets, the attendant who took care of the scrolls, which had the scriptures written on them, he took the scrolls out of the cabinet, brought them to Jesus as this hometown hero rabbi, this new celebrity, he brings it to him that he might make it, read the scriptures and make a comment on it. And so as he's handed the scroll, and it happened to be the scroll of Isaiah that had Isaiah, the book of Isaiah written on it, he turns carefully to Isaiah chapter 61. And there he defines his mission because it was a messianic passage. The prophecy is actually written not in the voice of Isaiah the prophet, but in the voice of the Messiah who was to come. Again, this is written 800 years before Christ was born. And this prophecy, beginning in Isaiah 61, was written in the voice of the Messiah. And it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. In the Old Testament, three types of people were anointed. Prophets, priests, and kings. They were anointed, and what the anointing meant was that they were being set apart for a task given to them by God. And they were authorized by God to speak and act in his name. And they were to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to do the work that they were set apart and called to do. That's what it meant to be anointed. And so when the Messiah came, he was to fulfill all of those roles. He was to be the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, the ultimate king. And so the Messiah would also be anointed of the Holy Spirit, set apart to his task and empowered by the Spirit. Well, what was the task as described in Isaiah 61? Very clearly listed. To proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to proclaim recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
Now that last one, the year of the Lord's favor, what was that? Well, that's clearly a reference to the Old Testament law, which taught the, the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee was one year out of every 50. Something really spectacular would happen in the life of God's people in the Old Covenant. That one year out of every 50, all the debts would be forgiven. All the slaves would be set free. And any family that lost property during that 50-year period would have that property restored to them. It was a time of restoration, a time of freedom, a time of joy, a time of new life, restored to what it was supposed to be. Now, with a superficial reading of that statement, that mission statement sounds an awful lot like salvation by works. And if that's all you were to read, it would, you would understand why somebody would say, well, this is what salvation is about. This is what the kingdom is about, going out and helping the poor, the oppressed, the captive. Well, again, I think that that is superficial. One thing that you have to understand is if that's what the gospel is, if that's the good news, if that's the mission of Christ and therefore the mission of the church, then all Christ is to us is an example. As he lived to free the oppressed, as he lived to give sight to the blind, as he lived to help the poor, then he is our Savior only in the sense that he is our example. We are to go and do likewise. But when we place Isaiah 61 in the context of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah itself and the Old Testament and the New Testament Gospels, we see that that would be a gross distortion of Isaiah's message about the Messiah's mission. Let's see how it's fulfilled according to Jesus. Look at verse 21. After he had read this portion of Isaiah 61, he rolled up the scroll, he handed it back to the attendant, then he sat down to preach. Where's my stool? I've never wanted to, stay, to sit down to preach, but I can't be judgmental to pastors. We tend to do that. We tend to maybe look askance at pastors who sit down on a stool to preach, but uh, that was the way they did it back in the synagogue. You would stand up to read the Word of God, and then the one who was to preach on that text would sit down. And it says that after Jesus sat down, all eyes were on him. The Jews would be sitting on the edge of their seat because they knew this was a messianic passage. They knew that this was a clear prophecy of the coming of the Messiah that they had been waiting for, the one who would bring to fulfillment all of God's promises. And so, and they, and they had heard all the buzz up in Galilee about John the Baptist and what he had been doing. And maybe John was the Messiah. And then they heard about Jesus and his preaching and his miracles. Maybe he's the Messiah. What's Jesus going to say about this messianic passage? Well, Jesus at that point makes the most important declaration in the history of the universe. He says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, I know some of you are thinking, wait, so Jesus made a sermon out of one sentence. Why doesn't our pastor preach like Jesus preached? I want to carefully point out, look carefully, Luke says, and he began to say to them, today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. He began to say that. In other words, that was his attention-grabbing attention comment to begin his sermon, and then he went on to explain what he meant about the mission of Isaiah 61 being fulfilled that day. He essentially was saying, I am the Messiah. I who speak to you am he. 
The kingdom is at hand. Salvation has come. We don't know what the rest of the sermon was like. We don't know what he said. But based on the rest of Isaiah, the rest of the Old Testament, the rest of Scripture, I think we can pretty well guess how Jesus would have explained that statement. That the mission that Isaiah talked about is fulfilled in his coming. First thing we know is that Isaiah 61 is at the end of the book of Isaiah. There's a lot of revelation and truth and prophecy that comes before Isaiah 61. And what comes immediately before this section in the, in the book of Isaiah is a, is a series of what are called the servant songs. The songs of the servant, the suffering servant. It's a very important portion of Old Testament teaching that says that when the Messiah comes, he is going to come as king. He is going to come and defeat all our enemies. He is going to come and establish the kingdom of God. But before he does all of that, he must first come and suffer for the people of God. And so before Isaiah 61, we have the absolutely crucial chapter of 53 of Isaiah where it says, he, the Messiah, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. This is the good news that he came preaching to the poor, the oppressed, the captive, the blind, is that he had come to die for our sins. He had come to suffer in our place, to take our transgressions, our iniquities, our sins upon himself and to die and bear the wrath of God and the condemnation of God that our sins deserve to bear it on the cross and to pay that penalty in full so that we might be forgiven, so that we might be seen as righteous by faith alone. That's what Isaiah 53 is all about, written 800 years before Christ came to accomplish it. And so you can't understand Isaiah 61 without understanding Isaiah 53. The good news is that Messiah would redeem us from the power and the penalty of our sins. Second point that I think Jesus might have made is he would have pointed out that the mission would advance by proclamation. His salv our salvation is what Christ did for us, not anything we have done ourselves. He suffered and died for us and was raised from the dead so that we would be born again, so that we would be made new, so that we would be forgiven, so that we would be adopted into God's family, so that we would live forever. But it's the proclamation of that finished work of Christ that's going to advance the kingdom, that's going to lead to the release of the captive, to the sight for the blind, to the prosperity of the poor. It happens by proclamation. The word proclaim is repeated three times in this very short passage from Isaiah 61. The kingdom advances by proclamation of the good news. We are not saved by serving the poor. We're not saved by serving the disabled. We're not saved by serving the oppressed. We are saved by faith alone in the finished work of Christ, as it's described in Isaiah 53. The third point that Jesus might have made in the rest of his sermon would be the purpose of miracles. We can tell by reading the text here that the Nazarenes were totally fixated on his miracles. They wanted to see him do these mighty works in Nazareth that he'd been doing in Capernaum and elsewhere. 
And so I think Jesus would have told them, you're misunderstanding the purpose of my miracles. Yes, my miracles provide relief for the oppressed, freedom for those who are captive to demons, captive to disease, captive in life. These miracles do this, but they are signs. He repeatedly calls his miracles signs. And the important thing to recognize about signs is that signs in and of themselves are worthless. Signs are only helpful if they point us to something that can truly help us. For instance, you're driving down the road and somebody in your car suddenly becomes violently ill and you realize you've got to get them to the hospital. And as you're driving down the road, you see a sign next to the road that says hospital to the uh, hospital ahead. That sign is not going to help the person who's violently ill in your car unless it helps you get to the hospital where that help can be given. The sign itself is worthless unless it points to what can truly help you. And that's what Jesus over and over again said, this is why I do miracles. Miracles are signs to point you to the true help that you need. And so when Jesus healed the blind, which he did... It was a sign that pointed to his power to take away spiritual blindness, which left you in the dark to who he was and why he came and left you lost and under God's wrath and condemnation. When Jesus fed 5,000 people with just a few loaves of bread, it was a sign that pointed to him. He made it clear as he did the miracle. He said, this is to point you to the fact that I am the bread of life. The miracle was a sign to point the people to him to find their ultimate satisfaction, their eternal satisfaction, because he is the bread of life. And matter of fact, he very quickly condemned those people who kept following him just to get more physical bread. When Jesus freed someone from oppression by demons, when he cast out demons... He did that as a sign that he alone could free them from their slavery to sin and death and Satan. And he warned them that if if they received the sign, in other words, had the demons cast out of them, but refused to go to him and trust in him and believe in him and follow him, if they refused and they left themselves empty spiritually, more demons would come than they had originally to take residence. These miracles were signs. And then maybe, finally, Jesus would need to come around in his sermon to say that he did have compassion for the poor, for the disabled, for those that are enslaved, for those that are oppressed in this world. Because this world is deeply broken. And Jesus had compassion on those who are hurt by the brokenness of this world or hurt by their internal brokenness and the brokenness around them. Jesus did have compassion, but he helped them with those physical, material, financial, emotional needs so that they would come to him for eternal life. They would come to him for peace. They would come to him for reconciliation with God the Father so that they might live in him. And quite honestly, because he has compassion for us, both body and soul, he still uses our physical and financial and relational and emotional struggles and trials in order to bring us to himself. 
Well, we see that as he finished explaining his statement that he had fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy of this mission, we see that that mission was rejected. In verse 22, it says at first the people were, the people in the synagogue were blown away by his gracious words or his words of grace, it says. And like everybody else that Jesus encountered who heard his teaching or his preaching, they would be blown away by the authority with which he spoke. As others would say, no one ever spoke as this man. But as he continued to show them how he would fulfill the messianic mission, they began to criticize him. Luke quotes one of them saying, is not this Joseph's son? Obviously, he hadn't gotten the word about the virgin birth, but isn't this Joseph's son? We know Joseph. And then Mark, the gospel according to Mark, tells us that they went on to list his siblings. We know his brothers and his sisters, they're here with us. Mark also quotes someone saying, is not this the carpenter? He's a carpenter, he's not a messiah. He's Joseph's son. We know him. He played with our kids. He went to our school. He took over his father's carpentry business. He can't be the Messiah. You see, they had a hometown filter. They saw Jesus wrongly because they had the wrong filter they were perceiving him through. As the old saying goes, familiarity breeds contempt. Or as Jesus says here, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. No prophet is acceptable in his hometown. I've thought about that because I've often wondered. I grew up in an area of, of Pennsylvania in a, in a small town that, that really needs the gospel. It needs Jesus. And throughout most of my adult life as I've done ministry, if I've preached and I've taught, I've wondered, might the Lord send me back there someday? You know, I love that town. I love that area. Maybe the Lord might send me back there someday to preach the gospel, but I don't think it would work. Because I think they would sit there as I was preaching and say, you know, that's 12-year-old Dan, you know. They'd still see me as that 12-year-old kid, you know, and just spouting off up there. You know, no prophet has any honor in his own town. But it's all about filters. What are the presuppositions? What are the assumptions that keep us from hearing God's word clearly and interpreting it correctly, especially when it comes to who Jesus is and what he came to do. Well, that disrespect quickly becomes hostility, we see, because Jesus refused to do miracles. Isn't it interesting? That if his mission was all about doing miracles, that in Nazareth he refused to do miracles. He quotes them, he reads their minds, he quotes them saying in, in, within themselves, what we heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. You realize what they're saying? They're saying, prove yourself, Jesus. Do some big, splashy miracles, then we'll believe in you. You know what's interesting? Go through the gospel accounts. Anytime anybody says something like that to Jesus, he will not do a miracle. How many times did the Pharisees say to him, Jesus, do a miracle, then we'll believe in you. That's because miracles are signs to point us to come to Christ. They're not meant for the skeptics. Miracles are done to strengthen faith, not create faith. Because the problem is, if your faith is based in miracles, then what happens when the miracles are over? Their faith needed to be in Him. They needed to trust in Him. 
And just think about it. If really, again, if what a lot of people are saying that really Jesus is just an example to us that we must love people, that we must care for the disenfranchised, we must care for the oppressed, we must care for the downtrodden, we must care for the poor. If that's really what salvation's about and that's what the mission of the church is only about that, then why didn't Jesus just come and only do miracles? Why didn't he walk down every street in Nazareth and fix every problem that everybody had? He could have done it, but he didn't because the miracles were signs to point people to him, to trust in him. And Mark, the gospel according to Mark, tells us explicitly that he didn't do miracles in Nazareth because of their unbelief. They didn't trust in him. They didn't believe in him. And so he didn't do miracles just to perform for them. Well, then Jesus really sets them off. He reminds them that when it comes to miracles, they went to people that were open to hear the message that went with the miracle. He talks about Elijah being sent by God to care for a Sidonian widow widow during the great famine instead of sending Elijah to the widows in Israel. And he also reminds them that God sent the prophet Elisha to a Syrian army commander who had leprosy to heal him and not to the lepers of Israel. In other words, the good news of the Messiah's saving work and its effect were only for those who believed, whether they were Jews or Gentiles. And Jews who rejected him as their Messiah, who refused to trust in him personally, were just as lost as Gentiles who never believed in him. But any who came to faith in him, no matter what their race, their tribe, their tongue, who believed in him were saved. This made them so angry that they dragged him out to a cliff to kill him because that's what you did with false prophets in the Old Testament. But it wasn't his time. We don't understand how, but somehow he just walked away calmly. But the important point is we know from the rest of the Gospels, he never returned to Nazareth. And he would later say to his disciples, if, you know, literally, when you go out to preach in the towns and villages, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Isaiah 61 is an important passage, but it's built upon the message of redemption in Isaiah 53. Matter of fact, Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 4, Jesus only reads verses 1 and 2, but verses 1 through 4, that's actually the scriptural basis for the vision statement that the leadership of Oakwood Church came up with several years ago. And we used that passage because we wanted to make sure that our mission is the same as Jesus' mission. And I hope that every church would do that to say, is our mission the same as the mission of Jesus Christ? Because if not, then we're going the wrong way. The good news for the poor is the good news that Jesus died for our sins and was raised for our justification. And we are called to take this good news to those who are poor because the poor are the ones who are most open typically to hear it. What we're looking for are those who are poor in spirit. And you can be poor in spirit and be rich and powerful. But the plain truth is most of the time, those who are poor in spirit and ready to hear this message of salvation are those people who are broken, people who are failing in life, people who are oppressed, people who are captive, people who recognize their need. Those are the people that are most likely to cry out for grace. 
And so they need to be at the focus of our ministry as well. People who are broken, people who are blind, people who are disabled, people who are captive to sin, captive to people, captive to jobs, whatever they're captive to. We need to go with a message of freedom, but that freedom is the gospel. It's the message of who Jesus is and what he did for us at the cross and how he is raised from the dead for our salvation. There's a huge debate going on in our culture and in the church as well about what they call social justice. Whose responsibility is it to care for the poor, the disabled, and the oppressed? And how do you go about doing it? There's a huge debate. We have an awful lot to say to that debate. And I'm not going to get into what the government's role is. We can talk about that offline. But I will tell you, it is the church's role. That I'm sure about. We are to minister to the disabled. We are to minister to the deprived. We are to minister to the enslaved. We are to minister to the oppressed. We should be on the front lines of doing that because we're the ones who have the gospel to share with them. And if we only care for their physical needs, their relational needs, their financial needs, and don't bring them to Christ, don't point them to Christ through the message of the gospel, then what we're doing is actually cruel. Because the help that we offer that is worldly and temporal will go away. What they need is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for including us in this mission. Thank you that your word even says as the church suffers, we fill up what is still lacking in the sufferings of Christ because as his church suffers, it advances the gospel as we stay faithful and true to him. Lord, I pray that you would give us a greater heart for the lost, a greater heart for those that are broken, a greater heart for those that are poor and needy and oppressed. And Lord, equip us to take the good news of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration to those who desperately need to hear it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.